Welcome to Mentoring Moments. Mentoring Moments is a sub-series of the E-Commerce Edge podcast. It is composed of clips taken from Jason's one-to-one and group mentorship sessions. Thank you for joining us on Talking Shop today. Today we have a special guest, Jason Greenwood. He is the host of a popular podcast called The E-Commerce Edge that uh, quote, promises to bring its listeners the very best in e-commerce, omni-channel, and retail SaaS tech entrant and simple language anyone can understand and apply to level up their business. But that's not the only thing you do, Jason, is it? Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your consulting work? Absolutely. So I've been working in e-commerce. I'm dating myself here, but I've been working in e-commerce for about 23 years. I think that this is my 23rd year working in e-com. Uh, it's been a it's been an amazing, crazy, fun ride. It's allowed me to to live a lifestyle that I could could only dream of, and and I really am appreciative for the industry. The industry is really tight knit and it's very supportive. And I started out working in agency land, then had my own e commerce pure play, then went went back into agency land, and and now uh, I've worked for some of the largest brands in ANZ as an employee, e commerce manager, head of digital, etc. And now I have my own uh, e commerce consultancy. Been doing that for almost three years now. Uh, as a completely independent consultant. And I guess what I do that's a little bit different to a traditional e-commerce consultant is I I specialize not in the marketing side. I don't deal with the marketing side of businesses. I deal with primarily their operational and technical challenges or opportunities. And I consult across the whole of the commerce stack. So not just the e-commerce front end, but ERP, CRM, CDP, PIM, PAUSE, system integration, WMS, OMS, IMS. Basically, if it's, if it's part of the commerce stack, I consult on it. So that's that's how yeah. I got to be here. Even that alphabetical commerce stack, right? Um, surely, surely there's some sort of um, acronym guide out there at this point, uh, or, or if not, maybe that's going to be the uh, next thing I see on your website. Um, it, it kind of made me giggle a little bit when I read the description of a simple language anyone can understand for your podcast, and so um, I'm really curious. Uh, we get in trouble for this a lot. What is your biggest buzzword beef with e-commerce vendor jargon today? Wow, that's 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 a tough one, but I probably have to say AI now. Uh, just in the last six months, AI I think is just uh, basically every single major technology vendor out there has added AI to the beginning or the end of their name. I think so that a they can get venture capital funding because it seems like venture capitalists now aren't funding funding anything that isn't AI focused. Uh, and look, I think that AI, you know, I did, I remember I did a podcast specifically about AI in the end of 2019 and it was December of, of 2019, I think is, is when I did that podcast and, uh, you know, I was, I was talking about it and, and it's interesting that this was before the AI boom happened. And I basically said, AI, holy grail or hell on earth was, was kind of the incendiary question to, to. Uh, I wouldn't want, wouldn't call it clickbait, but I definitely wanted to get people interested in that topic. And and really, I think that that AI, as it's developed over large language models in a in a consumer facing way, that has allowed the average everyday man and woman to be able to to access AI in ways that they never could before. But I think that still, for most merchants, where the confusing part comes in is every single merchant seems to be going, "How am I going to introduce?" or weave AI into my business and make use of this amazing new technology. And I tell people, don't panic. All of your existing technology vendors are already doing that work for you. So the, the reality is 99% of merchants out there, 
are going to be consuming AI through their existing portfolio of technology vendors. So sure, look at how you can maybe weave ChatGPT and other AI technologies into your workflows, uh, but, but most likely the technology vendors are going to do the heavy lifting for you because you won't be able to do it. You're not going to consume Amazon's AI as a service and custom integrate that into your storefront, for example. Yeah, and they shouldn't really, right? I mean, it, it, um, that is something that uh, AI is almost like a, a kind of like a lens, if you will, or a layer that, that enhances uh, an already existing function. And so we're kind of of the mindset that a lot of the functions that these, that these organizations use, they should rely on the vendor to provide those functions and not feel like they've got to go build it all themselves. And I can't even imagine the complexity of layering AI onto that and, and it working well. Is that, is that fair to say? I mean, you, you said you work in the operational and technical challenges. You would probably know better. Yeah, look, I, th- I think that it's, it's great. You know, I, I featured on my podcast recently, I, I, focused a, a featured uh, Ryan Imlach and he he's a he owns an e-commerce pure play digital store selling irrigation equipment and they recently implemented NetSuite and what he found is that the benefit of ChatGPT for his business was he could get ChatGPT to write sweet script automations for him that he could then just plug straight into straight into NetSuite and so for him you know, it would be awesome if NetSuite just had that in the Suite script uh, input field to where they they did the integration with ChatGPT and you could just type in your question in human language and it would do it all for you. But so he has to do one more step, which is copy and paste out of ChatGPT into NetSuite. But you know, I think that's a great example of someone who has thought outside the box of okay, cool, NetSuite is going to introduce some elements of AI directly into the platform. For example, demand planning, they are bringing in Oracle's AI driven demand planning layer into NetSuite, which is all, it's, it's, it's all AI or machine learning is probably a better term to use, driven piece of technology. But then he's introducing into the operational elements of his business. He wants to take ownership and control of the technology in his business as opposed to 100% relying, for example, on his NetSuite partner to write all the suite script that he needs for automations and saved searches, et cetera. He's able to take a much higher level of ownership in the business as a result of ChatGPT. So I think AI is a buzzword. It will be transformative. Is it going to disrupt every single business overnight? No. But where I think it's having a bigger impact today and where I think it's it's going to continue to have an outsized impact is, is in the content post-production game. Uh, not so much the, the production game. The production game is one part. You still need human beings to still very heavily on the creative aspects of it. But I mean, I, I just look at my own personal brand work and the content that I'm putting out and the ability, for example, to cut long form video up into very short form clips using something like Opus Clip. You know, before Opus Clip, this was this is an AI piece of technology that's only been around for six months. Uh, with Before that, it was massively time consuming to manually edit down into short clips for short video platforms like TikTok and Shorts and, and Reels. And so... I think that AI is is having an outsized impact in certain areas. Uh, the low, there's a lot of low hanging fruit there from a Gen AI perspective, and so I, I think that'll have a bigger impact for brands. Uh, is more from a marketing, branding, content perspective than a operational perspective, at least tomorrow. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. You know, when you were mentioning um, the the NetSuite uh, and demand planning kind of earlier, and you corrected yourself, it's more you know, ML than it is AI. It reminded me of a conversation uh, I had a couple of weeks ago with an analyst in which 
um, the big black box came back up whenever we're thinking about demand planning, whenever we're thinking about the machine making decisions for us. That doesn't mean that we want to be blindfolded, right? That doesn't mean that we, we don't want to know what's going on. We still need to oversee what's going on and say, yes, that is the best decision for my business because you've got a machine that's over here thinking for the business based solely on inputs, right? Um, but there's an emotional aspect to some of this stuff too. And so I think that um, that it, it can be a double-edged sword. It can help and it can hurt, right? Yeah, and I mean, I think I think most people realize that, for example, if you're using AI to help you write your emails, you know, you're you're rarely going to trust the AI and just click send without reviewing it first, right? You, you know, it's sure if if a piece of AI technology and there's a few few very good ones for email, look across twenty thousand emails you've sent through Gmail over the years, and it can analyze all of that for tone and intros and outros, and it can analyze who you've spoken with a lot versus who you've spoken with a little. It, it, it can do certain things at scale that it just would take a human forever to do. And so I think automating those type of tasks in order to generate an initial response that you then review, maybe tweak, maybe edit a little bit, and then click send, I, I think there's going to be human cur curation associated with a lot of this for a long time to come. So we're going to be the, we're going to become the editors and the producers of our own lives. And we won't necessarily be the, the progenitors of all the content that we, that we put out there in the world. Um, I would take that actually. <laughs> uh, there are days when that sounds great. Um, I was actually just thinking also while you were talking about how interesting it is that we call it machine learning, but it really is also going to become human training because when we think about the application of that in something like, our order management solution and how an order gets routed. And if it's considering millions and billions of data points to determine the smartest way for an order to get routed, and it chooses something that Alexis would never choose, Alexis wants to know why that is being chosen. What can I learn from the machine too? Like, And so uh, there's, there's certain things there, I think, that are going to be beneficial to us in the future. And I'm hopeful that... Um, that it could be a big uh, resolution to some of the major supply chain issues that that we saw over the last you know twelve months. I think um, we might be a little bit far out from that, but hopefully uh, that is coming. Um, question about kind of another trend, I guess I would say. I was kind of hoping this was the buzzword that you would pick because I want to ask you to describe it in your simple language. But the composable commerce. So you said you do. Um, operational and technical challenges for organizations and commerce. Composable commerce is uh, buzzword uh, friendly, I guess. Um, that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And so tell us Jason's definition in simple language anyone can understand and apply, composable commerce. Yeah, look, I, it's interesting that that term. So I, I've been doing this over twenty years, and to my, you know, from my perspective, over that time, commerce has always been composable. So there's never been one technology to rule them all. There's never been one, you know, NetSuite gets close, um, but there's components that even it doesn't do. There are, you know, you've got BrightPearl, you've got a whole bunch of other technologies that are suite-based technologies that try to do four or five significant business functions under one roof. And they're more or less successful at doing that. But realistically, there's always been, when we look at the business management stack from a technology perspective, there's always been two, three, four major pieces of technology in most businesses that are required to run that business. Very rarely is there one single technology that can do absolutely everything. There's no such thing as a one ring to rule them all in the technology world. Otherwise, we'd all be using that one single stack and there would be no need for all these best of breed 
point solutions to do specific niche things. And so from that perspective, I think commerce has always been composable. And composable is, from my perspective, picking best of breed solutions for specific business functions, whether that be internal or customer facing, and tying them together in such a way that it makes sense. So integrating them from a data perspective, from a workflow perspective, from a process perspective, integrating those systems together in such a way that it makes sense and brings efficiency to the business, right? And so I, I think headless is probably, I, I think both of those buzzwords are absolutely terrible because <laughs> even in a headless environment, you certainly have a head. Uh, it just happens to usually be a completely custom head that you attach to, uh, for example, in the e-commerce world, we're, we're attaching it to a headless e-commerce backend or management solution and a headless CMS or content management solution that's plugged into a custom you know, display layer for the consumer to interact with. And so I, I, I don't particularly love either of those terminologies. I, I feel like composable was brought about because headless was such a terrible term that they kind of replaced it with composable to make it more palatable to the average consumer, average business leader. And because it was a term that is more understandable, it makes sense. Okay, well, we have a composable solution. We don't have one, one there's no one size fits all. We have these three or four systems that have to talk to each other data. And, and it's kind of that simple. But unfortunately, what's happened in the headless world is that headless has historically been by developers for developers. It's, it's been developers wanting to create solutions to scratch an itch that was theirs, and it didn't necessarily have a tangible business impact. And I, I still believe in you know, this one man's opinion that 99% of merchants out there do not need a headless e-commerce solution, that monolithic e-commerce solutions are here to stay. They ain't going to be going away anytime soon. And even those monolithic solutions, when they go headless, they'll be going headless on their own platform. And that's how most merchants will, will implement a headless platform is they will be doing it all on that same SaaS platform. And the, the, the template or the model for that is, is Shopify's hydrogen and oxygen. Now, that's still very early days for them, but that is headless on their own platform. And I, I would guess that sometime within the next five years, all new deployments on Shopify will be headless out of the box using Shopify's native headless solution. So I, I think most monolithic players will go to headless on their own platform, and that will be how most merchants consume headless. You are, you're baiting me is what is happening right now. You're, yeah, you're, love you're it. just dropping them all right in for me. And so I think I would have to start with, give me your definition of monolithic first, because um, I, I would disagree that monolithic uh, by my definition is here to stay, but I think it would be helpful to hear your definition first. Uh, it's just it's it's just your monolithic platforms like the traditional Shopify, the traditional big commerce, the traditional Vtex, the tr traditional Magento, uh, all the traditional e-commerce platforms out there where the platform front end and the back end are joined natively together. You can't you can't really have one without the other. And so I think that um, particularly as the economy contracts, headless, uh, a headless deployment is absolutely, I don't think there would be many that would dispute this, that it's more expensive, it's more time consuming, it's more complex, requires more complex integrations uh, to get up and running on. And I think especially with a contracting economy where brands were exploring headless more when money was free and cheap and easy, I think they were more willing to take a risk on headless because in my opinion, it is more risky. It is more time consuming. It is more complex and it is more expensive to deploy a headless um, implementation of e-commerce. And, and so I think that, you know, 
a lot of the things that Headless is, is sets about to solve for, um, a lot of these platforms are solving in a monolithic way. So you can see they, they provide the front end and they provide the back end and, and never the, never the two shall be separated. But even in the case of monolithic platforms, they nowadays it is very common that they will have, a, especially if they're a SaaS platform, they will have a fully, a fully featured uh, integration layer, a fully, in, a fully mature API layer uh, that you can then deploy a headless front end and integrate with their back end. So, you know, it doesn't preclude you from doing headless on those platforms. It's just not the lion's share of the way those platforms are deployed. Something like 95%, I don't know the exact statistic, but something like 95% of Shopify stores and big commerce stores and VTech stores are implemented monolithically, meaning you're using their storefront technology and you're using their backend. And, and that's, how, that's how it's commonly deployed. Gosh, I've got so many questions, but I think um, given the logos that you're throwing out there, my first thought is, okay, but what are the size of the organizations and the complexity of the organizations that are deploying in this monolithic fashion, right? Because when we think about monolithic, um, we we take it a step further, not just the, the inability to separate the front end from the back end, but if it was a headless monolith, for example, to us, that means the back end uh, isn't going to play well in the sandbox with others that are best of breed. It's going to be difficult because there's too many interdependencies between the the, the different functionalities that occur in the back end. So take product information management, for example. You're on BigCommerce, you're on Shopify, you're on Magento. Nobody yell at me, nobody email me. Um, just throwing out logos here. Uh, you outgrow whatever whatever they're providing that covers sort of product information management. You need to go get a best of breed PIM. You're trying to bring in Akinio or, or something else like that. Um, and it can be very challenging because maybe that PIM is also the thing that is powering uh, if they offer some sort of native site search, or maybe it's the thing that's that's closely related to the promotions engine, or who knows what it's coupled with, but it's very difficult to decouple. And so are you telling me that that's not going to matter in the future? That 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 monolithic in terms of uh, interdependency is not a problem? Uh, I don't see it as a problem today, so I don't know why it would be a problem in the future. Uh, it's very, very common today. It's it's more common than ever before for medium-sized brands. So let's say a brand doing $20 million or more in GMV a year. It is becoming exceptionally common for brands of that scale to have a PIM, to have a monolithic e-commerce platform. There's, there's very, very few e-commerce platforms out there that even pretend to be a PIM. They don't, you know, for example, with a big commerce or a Shopify or a Vtex or even Magento for that matter, they don't pretend to, to be a PIM. They don't, they don't, they don't, um, they don't promote themselves as having PIM functionality. And as a result of that, I think most brands realize, hey, if we want to, if we want to slice and dice our data in unique ways over and above the data that comes from traditionally our ERP. And the ERP would typically only have very, very basic product information, it would have maybe name, maybe SKU, maybe a short description, you know, price and inventory. That would be kind of the, the common things that would come out of the ERP, not even images, not any structured data, product attributes, et cetera. And so therefore, uh, most brands realize that, hey, we'll get our core product data out of our ERP, that will flow into the PIM, we'll enrich it in the PIM, enrich it once, and then be able to slice and dice it by the distribution channel that we're going to from there. And remember that most brands nowadays, they're omni-channel. So we're not just talking about their e-commerce front end, we're talking about marketplaces, we're talking about social, we're talking about marketing platforms, et cetera. And so that 
data needs to be sliced and diced in maybe three, four, five, six different ways coming out of the PIM, depending on the channel that it's flowing to at that time. And so I, I think that a better term for composable is probably modular. That would probably, in my mind, be a better way to think of it, that we have these different technologies that are modular in nature, that are building blocks that, that specialize in certain functions within a business, and they do that very, very well. Now, some platforms try to do different things. I think, for example, uh, I just think of Odoo. And Odoo kind of pitches themselves as not just an ERP, but that you can do all of your kind of PIM functionality inside Odoo. And to a degree, that's true. And I have certain clients that are, that are doing that or trying to do that. But they find that at a certain stage of growth, they need a dedicated PIM that can do... Um, I'll just give you one example that the good PIMs will have an enrichment workflow and stage gates before they can be distributed, right? Odoo doesn't have that unless you custom program it to do so. Um, and so th there are certain things that PIMs do, version control of information and data that can be rolled backwards and forwards. Product information can be rolled up and down across the layers of a product and between um, you know, variants of a product, for example. Um, so there's lots of things that a dedicated PIM will do that Odoo, while it tries to pitch itself as a little bit of a quasi-PIM, it will never be. A it will never be as good as a dedicated PIM because it's not dedicated to doing that thing. Yeah, I think that that I think that makes sense. I think that still for you mentioned I kind of as a mark twenty million in in ARR um, that that these I'm sorry in um, in uh, GMB that these organizations are doing uh, that are okay with monolithic structure. I think that I think size of the organization with their processing is one thing. I think the complexity of the organization is another thing. What are they selling? Who are they selling to? Where are those places located? Do, or do they have a, a large um, global presence? Or are they only in you know sort of one country? Like there's different layers of complexity there that I think would um, at some point make it extremely challenging for them to survive and thrive on a monolithic solution. So in your mind, what's that breaking point? At what point do they need to go out and possibly start sourcing more best of breed where uh, maybe their um, their backend e-commerce platform looks less like a platform and more like um, a bunch of Lego stacked together. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I maybe, I, maybe I'm playing in a totally different world to you guys, and and that may be true. I mean, your ICP is probably quite different to mine, and so I, I haven't run into, I've, I've run into since I started consulting full time. I've only run into one brand so far in all of the brands that I've consulted to that really they had no choice but to go headless with what they sold and how they sold it. And that was because they had a combination of digital products and physical products. They were doing some manufacturing. They were doing some third-party sourcing. They were producing digital products. Um, they, they just had certain ways in which they sold products into the market that no monolithic front end, no out-of-the-box storefront could do things the way. And they had been building effectively a custom front end uh, on WooCommerce. They had been building that in-house with an in-house dev team for like the last five years. And so because that was the case, they were like at a point of customization on WooCommerce that they were like, okay, we've kind of exhausted the limits of, of, the, of what this platform can do. And therefore we now need to move to a full custom front end um, that can integrate with a headless e-commerce backend that's designed to support a full custom front end. 
via API. And sure, you know, we could do the CMS components on WordPress, but that's not really going to work either because of this long laundry list of challenges around that. And so they were a prime candidate for a headless um, solution because just when we went through all of the customizations that they had done and all of the things that they had on their roadmap to do over the following 12 to 18 months, there was not a single monolithic native storefront solution that could get anywhere close to the things that they wanted to do. Um, but that's the only one that, I, that, I've, that I've run across so far that really required a headless solution. Some brands want it because, for example, they're focused on speed and performance on the front end and and they want to eke out every millisecond of performance on the front end. And so therefore they're super performance focused. And so I don't like, I'm not going to tell them not to do that, but in most cases where I've seen that be a focus, they've got hundred other pieces of low hanging fruit that they should probably look at first before they ever go down the path of, of a headless solution. But again, I think it depends on what your ICP is as a platform, as a technology, as a brand. And so for me, because of the types of clients that tend to gravitate towards working with me, like I said, there's just there's just not a lot of requirement for a headless solution. Yeah, and I think you're right. Um, you you in describing that customer, you described several of our clients like almost to a T. In fact, we it could be the same client. I, I'm not sure. So, um, in uh, in several of the ones that I I'm thinking of too, they also have a, a subscriptions aspect to their business, and yep. so that that creates a layer of complexity. Um, the type of products that they sell. Uh, the type of subscription models that they sell uh, can be different um, for a digital product versus physical product and so forth. And so those layers of complexity, um, for them, it wasn't necessarily a, a headless as much as it was all of the moving pieces on the back end, uh, although they had already developed a headless front end. And we see that we see that everyone somewhere else, someone comes to us, they've already got their headless front end, they're looking for the back end. But another thing that we see frequently, I would say, is... Um, it, are these organizations that come to us and go, we think we want headless. Uh, it sounds good. You know, we're not sure. But the, the, what they're really not sure about is the amount of work that it takes to go headless, which is one of the reasons that we built out our storefronts. And so we've got native decoupled headless, if you will, storefronts that that connect to all of our backend omnichannel uh, capabilities. Um, and it's interesting because uh, the market even though all of us like to talk about all of these things that seem very um, high technical, the market doesn't necessarily always seem ready for it. And, or they may have been ready two years ago, but now they're regressing. Like you said, they're, they're focusing on uh, more low hanging fruit, um, which actually, so one of your podcasts, I giggled quite a bit at the name of it. Um, it was called, uh, WTF, you're still using coupons in e-commerce, replace coupons with cash back and win. And I thought about that and it, the, the name of it was funny, of course, but what you're describing there is, is really just like a, a really simple change to a promotional merchandising strategy that theoretically most, most companies should be able to make using their existing technology. So thinking about some of those low hanging fruit um, wins, what are some other creative ways you've seen brands change kind of strategies, big or small? Um, by using their existing technologies? I, I think that one thing that I see quite often that is, is overlooked is the all of the other operational elements that create a brand experience other than just the front-end CX layer. So 
brands don't oftentimes think about, especially if they're a dropshipping brand or they have a mix of owned product and warehousing and some products are dropshipped or some products are shipped from, say, a distributor or a wholesaler direct to the customer. Um, I think that a lot of brands, they don't necessarily think about the disjointed nature of all of the customer touch points that they have. And I, I think the other thing that a lot of brands overlook is that especially from a customer service perspective, you are never going to get every operational function of your business perfect. It's never going to be perfect. So in other words, you're going to have little bugs on the front end of your website, no matter how perfect you try to make it. You're going to ship things late. It's going to arrive late. A carrier is going to lose a product. There's going to be things that happen throughout the customer journey that you definitely do not want to happen that will, that will make customers not so happy. Um, but how you deal with that becomes your point of differentiation. And I've talked about this on, on other podcasts, and I learned this back in the, in the hospitality days, because before I ever got into digital, I worked several years in hospitality. And one of my managers, he was one of the best managers I ever had, he said, Jason, we actually don't mind if, if a customer gets upset or gets angry or we do something that's not quite right. We don't necessarily mind that because it actually gives us a chance to stand out in the customer's mind as being better than everybody else. When somebody comes into our restaurant, and they spend money with us, they expect it to be perfect. They expect it to go exactly right. They expect their steak to be cut per cooked perfectly. They expect uh, everything to go absolutely perfectly. They expect nothing to get spilled or dropped on them. They expect everything to go right. And when it does go right, that becomes not so memorable because they, they paid for it, they got what they expected, and they walk out and sure they're happy, but it's not that memorable. If we make a mistake or something goes wrong that's outside of our control, et cetera, et cetera, and we make it right with them in a memorable way, that will stand out in their mind much more than if we got everything right from day dot. And so he said, you give me the opportunity. You, it's your job to detect when a customer is unhappy, when they're not 100% thrilled with the experience, but it's my job to make sure that they go out of here and they go, holy shit, that was the most amazing fix to whatever problem I had that I've ever experienced in a restaurant before. And that's why they will come back to us. And so... And so I look at I look at the opportunity to recover, and, and it's called service recovery, is what it's called in the in the industry. And I think that there's there's an opportunity for memorable service recovery in ecom in exactly the same way. So the way that we deal with challenges or problems becomes standout in our customers' mind in a way that a perfect experience end to end never can. So I think that's one of the big things that I see a lot of. You described a restaurant experience. So we're talking about maybe one or two, hopefully one or two or less mistakes in the evening. That's manageable, right? How do you how do you do service recovery at scale? Do you have examples of somebody doing that? Look, I, I do. I, I had, so this is back in my, my uh, agency days. We had a client who was on an older version of Magento. They were in the process of migrating off of that older version of Magento. But in the process of migration, which was a pretty significant body of work because their Magento implementation was very custom, um, they got hacked. And uh, there was a whole bunch of credit card data, um, not all customers, but a significant portion of their customers had their credit card data compromised. Um, and the way that they handled it, it they, they actually thought that it had a good chance of putting them out of business. They were seriously, seriously concerned about the, the brand impact it would have on them. They were a pure play brand, so they didn't have physical retail. They were a pure play online brand, very successful brand. And they went out and the, I, I think for, they did two things right, for, well, three. 
first of all, they dealt with it immediately. Like I'm talking, they, they didn't wait a week to let their customers know. It was like literally the same day that they knew this happened. They were already starting to put together comms to their customers. Um, the founder and CEO of the company was the one that sent the email, literally drafted the email, wrote the email, sent the email. Um, this was not just coming from some PR person. Um, and then they they went beyond that, and they they of course they offered a, a, a basically a, a monetary benefit. Uh, I think it was a coupon code or something like that, as by way of apology. But that was that was really not the focus of of what they were doing. They were they were trying to say, look, in the same way that you trusted us with your hard earned money in the past, we want you to be able to trust that we're going to be transparent and honest with you at all times, right? And so for me, that that worked. They they did lose some customers, but not nearly as many as they were worried that they were going to lose. It was a very small percentage. It was in the single digits of customers that they lost over it, and and that they gave the opportunity for the customer. They said in the email, they said, "Hey, look, if you want us to completely delete your account from all of our systems, we are very happy to do that. If you are, you know, we're going to make this right, and we are going to be implementing security on the backside of this that blows everything else away we've ever." had before. And this was a, you know, and, and they didn't try to apportion blame. They didn't try to say, oh, this is because it was Magento and because there wasn't a patch for this problem. And, and they didn't try to play the blame game. They blamed themselves. And they said, look, this is our responsibility. We know it's our responsibility. We failed you. We're sorry. We're going to do everything in our power to make it right as quick as possible. Um, and it came from the CEO of the company. And it happened to be a female, it happened to be a female founder and, and CEO. And I think she, I, I think the, and I wouldn't normally bring gender into it, but I think the fact that she was female she showed a level of empathy that I think goes beyond what sometimes a lot of males would show. And um, that empathy really came through in their communications as a result. And it was very powerful for them. And they, you know, within six months, that was well and truly behind them. But the, the, the customers that chose to stay with them, that was like their most sticky customers. That was their most brand loyal customers. And then they went to new heights within six months after that. And so that's that's an area where I think really honesty, transparency, immediacy, empathy. I think all of those things, if you can bring that together um, in all of and she set the example. Like she had a customer service team that could have dealt with all this. No, she's like, I'm going to lead from the front. I'm going to show how we do this. Uh, you know, if we're going to go down, we're going to go down swinging. And, and she did. And it, and it was very successful for her. Yeah, I think, I think, um, gosh, something at that scale, it, it has to be handled from the top, right? Um, I was kind of thinking about, you mentioned earlier some of the ways that you can sort of win customers back even before you've lost them. Um, and you mentioned shipping not going on on time. So that may not happen on scale uh, on a scale basis. Hopefully it doesn't. Uh, clearly during the pandemic, that wasn't the case. But now that we're getting back to a little bit more normal supply chain scenarios, I think that that is um, less of a frequency. Uh, but I'm curious from your point of view, I, I know I've got some answers uh, because we sell some technology, but from your point of view, what are some of the ways that technology can aid in still accomplishing those same goals? Immediacy, transparency, making it right uh, in a scenario that isn't wide scale like that, but that could happen frequently, like misshipping. Yeah, there, there are a few there are a few technology platforms that can help customer service teams automate certain pieces of comms that still uses your brand voice, but it's automated in that it foresees things that will become a problem before they're a problem 
to the customer. And so I think it's the it's proactivity in some of these technologies that make all the difference. So I featured, for example, on my podcast, I featured a couple of shipping management platforms that they tap into not only your internal systems, but they also tap into your carrier's systems at the same time. To st- when, the, when there's likely to be a delay, whether it's because, for example, there's a delay on getting it out of your warehouse or out of the 3PL's warehouse, but also in the carrier network, if there's congestion in the network or there's delays, whatever, they can predict this. Again, with machine learning, they can predict this, especially given a specific route, origination, destination. They can see when something's taking a little bit longer than normal. And so they will proactively send an email to the customer saying, hey, look, we've recognized in our system that this shipment is not going to get to you as fast as we would like it to or as we expected it to. But it is on the way. It is definitely coming. Uh, here's your tracking details. Here's the information. You can follow it all the way to your door. Oh, and by the way, here's our coupon code because, because we didn't meet our own standards for shipping speed and performance. Here's an extra 10% off coupon as a, as a sorry for the next time when you shop with us. So it's these types of technologies, I think, that are are really, the, it's the proactive nature of these technologies that make them successful and make them sexy for, for merchants. And it, it's something that you can implement at scale without scaling bodies. But there's probably another piece of non-scalable stuff that makes an even bigger impact to the customer. And that is operationalizing customer discussions. So most marketing teams, especially for pure play e-commerce brands, it's all push marketing, meaning it's all, it's all outbound communications. It's all header bars and conversion bars and emails and SMSs and direct mail. It's all outbound push communications. There's not, okay, maybe they have a feedback tab on their website that says click here and it's Feedbackify or a Campile tab or something like that where people can give feedback, but they haven't operationalized having two-way conversations with their customers. I, I haven't actually seen a single brand uh, do this yet that at least that I buy through, or at least that I've consulted to, um, whereby the marketing and or customer service teams have a regular cadence of picking up the phone and actually calling customers and having conversations with them. Oh, hey, I saw that you bought from us the other day. It looks like it's actually already been received. What did you think of the product? What did you think of our service? How did you find out about us? How did you hear about us in the first place? How did you, you know? And so they're trying to automate all of this conversational stuff as part of marketing automation or CDP workflows or post-purchase follow-up emails or UGC solicitation emails or whatever. They're trying to get reviews and, and testimonials and all these things, but there are, or, or uh, you know, I, I've seen brands completely automate the, uh, the, the, the entire process of soliciting for not only UGC, but um, for NPS, for example, net promoter score. And so they will, they will automate that whole process. Well, I, I think, that scaling the unscalable, again, has more of an impact on customers. Actually picking up the phone, and I don't know a single customer service team that's busy 24-7, pass those people when they have a bit of downtime, pick up the phone and fucking talk to customers. That will make more of an impact than automating all the other things that you're doing today. You're going to upset a lot of customer customer uh, reps there with, uh, I don't know, any of them that are busy all the time. Um, I, there's a couple of things I heard in there that I think um, are true. I think well, uh, not that I disagree with you, but that I think should be reiterated, rather. Um, the proactiveness and the um, the relationship of that to uh, being able to see in this scenario the the full journey of either the customer or the order or something reaching deeper into the supply chain and further into the customer side of the supply chain. And then that 
taking that transparency and passing it along to the customer. I think that's low hanging fruit uh, that we don't see done uh, as frequently as it should be done. But then the third piece too was, um, was a sense of, or sort of remediation for a problem that's not yet a problem. And that's really, really interesting because um, the things that you just described there for me in my head, I'm going that that encompasses call center activities, um, most likely, or, or some level of something like that. Uh, it encompasses supply chain technology uh, and it encompasses possibly if you're going to automate that remediation for something that hasn't yet happened, um, the connection between at least the issue, wherever that's going to be identified, whether it's call center or in supply chain, and possibly some of the marketing efforts if you're going to automate, like, say, a coupon to be uh, to be distributed, right? Um, that is a lot of really complex data and workflows and triggers that are happening on the back end that need to fire off um, without a hitch. You get one chance, right? You, you've identified a problem. You're calling out to the customer who maybe didn't even know that there was a problem because maybe they forgot that they ordered uh, in the first place. And you're calling it out to them you better get that right. How do you get that right? How do you get that yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think it requires not only some serious thought about the workflow and the customer journey and the customer experience, but then also, okay, what does the integration need to look like to make this happen? Is it consistent? And do we need to, for example, when we make an intervention, do we then need to stop other workflows from happening. So for example, a lot of brands will have a, you know, a UGC workflow set up, you know, seven days, 10 days, 14 days, 21 days, whatever it is, after a person is supposed to have received their product, they will go and ask for a product review, right? Well, if we know the product's going to be delayed, then we probably need to terminate that workflow because otherwise it's highly likely we're going to be asking them for a review on a product that they haven't even freaking got yet. So I think there's there's that level of thought that needs to go and empathy that needs to go into this as well. And so I, and I think the first question I would ask in that environment is why isn't the request for a review automatically tied into my shipping confirmation workflow anyway, that that then becomes the trigger instead of an automated set period of time that says, okay, automatically – 10 days after we ship a, an item, we're going to we're going to send that email because that's easier. That's easier to do. And it doesn't require any custom in integration to do. The other way is harder, but it's going to be more accurate and it's going to be more relevant to the customer, right? So we, yeah. we, can, we can assume that seven days after we get the delivery confirmation through our carrier integration, whatever that might be, it's highly likely that the customer will have had a chance to unbox and at least look at that product, right? So why don't we use that as a trigger instead of a default window to send that email. And so I think this is the type of operational stuff that it's the nuts and bolts, nitty gritty, complex stuff that we need to get up on a whiteboard and we need to use the bloody 3M sticky notes and we need to work through this and we need to say, are we using the right triggers for these workflows? Are we sending the right communications at the right time to the right person? Some are going to be reactive. Some are going to be proactive. By definition, some are going to be both. Um, and and are we genuinely having empathy for the customers that have this experience? And that's something that I think that we all can get better at. Every single brand out there can hone and develop and craft their empathy gene, but it really does start at the top of the organization. It, it starts from the leadership team and it can't just be a marketing exercise. It has to be part of the DNA of the business to have empathy for the customer journey all the way through from the point of consideration 
to receipt of product to potential return of that product and potential repurchase. So I, I, I think that those things, if we can weave empathy into business, into more businesses, customers by definition will have a better experience. Man, I love that. Let's uh, let's write something together on operationalizing empathy because there's the there's this aspect of empathy that, gosh, I remember when the pandemic first happened and it was all about comms that were going out to customers and things like that. And yes, I'm not that is totally important, but it doesn't stop there. So much of this goes into the follow through and the action of it. The words are empty if you can't follow it up with action. And and your example of the the asking for a review before the product even comes. Um, is is one that I have experienced too frequently. I almost threw in there uh, and make sure that you know if your carrier is USPS, you better add three more days to whatever they say is delivered because it's not actually delivered when it's delivered, right? But it is important to know uh, your carrier systems too, even if there is a pre-built integration, what's what's there. And so that that kind of takes me into, um, I'm I'm really curious. I've never asked this question before or thought about it, but how many of and don't name them, how many of your customers do you think put themselves through every aspect of what they expect their customer experience to be? Are they going out and buying their stuff? Yeah. Very few. I think what mostly happens is that each silo of the business tests the pieces of the customer journey that they touch or that they Mm -hmm. own or that they're KPI'd on. And unfortunately, what happens there, and I've seen this happen all too often, and a lot of businesses put this in the too hard basket. So, I, and I had this experience personally as an e-commerce manager. Okay, so when I was an e-commerce manager of a very big brand, uh, healthcare, natural health products brand, uh, one of the biggest in region, and you know we were doing thousands and uh, tens of thousands of orders a month. And so, anything that we did from an operational perspective had to, by definition, scale. It had to be scalable, right? We, we definitely tried to introduce elements of scaling the unscalable from a customer service perspective. We definitely tried to keep the surprise and de- delight elements there, but almost everything else, I'd say 98% of what we did was, was almost at infinite scale because it had to be. But one of the problems is, and we even had this in our business, is that some of the KPIs that I was responsible for as an e-commerce manager were not totally within my control. And I'll give you one example. I'll give you one example that brands, I have never seen a brand do this, and I think every brand should, and that is plot a graph at least once a month between average catalog availability and conversion rate. Because the reality is, is that conversion rate, there is a direct, and I've seen this in every brand that I've discussed this with, I've seen a direct correlation between average catalog availability, meaning what percentage is in stock versus out of stock on any any given monthly rolling basis, and your conversion rate. There's a direct correlation. Your conversion rate will drop almost in tandem with your catalog availability. And this this is natural human psychology stuff. The vast majority of brands out there, for example, have a free shipping threshold. And if I go to a website and I'm going to buy three things, one of those things is is out of stock, and that, that thing would have pushed me over into the free shipping threshold, well, then I will take my entire purchase. And even if it's slightly more expensive somewhere else, I'm not just going to take that one item to someone else. I'm going to take all three of those items, and I'm going to buy them through someone, through someone that can supply all three of those items today, and that I can get free shipping through, right? And so this is a natural thing. This is a natural buy, part of buyer psychology. We've incentivized people to spend more with us and have bigger basket sizes with every single purchase. But the downside of that means that there's a greater opportunity that one or more of those items will not be in stock. So I tell people, I tell most brands, 
the, the ones that you should never, ever, ever, ever be out of stock of, in fact, you should move heaven and earth to make sure you're not, are the top 25% of your products. Bottom 25%, maybe not, maybe not quite as critical. Maybe that, maybe that middle 50%, you know, you decide on a percentage basis, but that top 25% of your products, if you have a supplier that is slow, and this is where demand planning comes in because it can do it on a supplier basis and you can know, okay, on average, when I order something off the supplier, it takes us three days to get here, for example. You can, you can do the averages. You can work this out uh, or, or machine learning can anyway. And so you can plan based on sales momentum and throughput through your business averages, seasonality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know roughly how quickly you're going to go through your remaining stock. And therefore, you may need to order further in advance for certain suppliers to make sure you never, ever run out of that product. Or your min-maxes, the minimum amount you will hold, the maximum amount you will hold, may both need to, to, to increase to make sure that you never, ever run out of that product. Or if, if they are shipping, if it's a distributor and they're shipping on your behalf direct to the consumer, then what you want to do is you want to sequester part of their stock for you. You want to do a trade deal with them to where a certain percentage of that inventory, it's not based on a unit count, it's based on a percentage of the inventory is automatically allocated to you to where you can always guarantee that your customers are going to be able to get that product through you. So this is something that I think from an operational perspective, e-commerce managers are usually responsible in conjunction occasionally with marketing managers, the conversion rate of a website. But I can tell you from firsthand experience that procurement has more control over the conversion rate than you do. You can run all the A-B tests, all the ABM tests you fucking want. But at the end of the day, if you don't have a product, a customer can't buy it. So these are the types of things I think cross-functional KPIs like these should be implemented and they have to have ownership across the business. And if you're going to give me that KPI, then you also have to give me the authority to tell the freaking procurement manager, we are never going to run out of this product. I don't care what you have to do to do it. But we are never going to run out of this. These, this, this, this percentage of our catalog, we will never run out of these. Otherwise, we should drop the product. We can't say we will never run out. Then we get rid of that product. So these are the types of discussions and empowerment I think has to happen in these teams. Yes. And there are ways in which you can empower that e-commerce manager uh, to use technology in a, in a way that they have more control over the inventory. Um, things like reserve and cart, you know, you're, you're going to check out if you're running low in stock and you're trying to promote that inventory, uh, why not use something like a reserve and cart to say, okay, this person has these things in cart for the next three minutes, you know, that's Jason's t-shirt and nobody else gets that t-shirt. And then we're going to release it back to regular inventory so that we know that Jason, when he goes to check out, we're not going to lose that entire sale just because that shirt's not in stock or uh, the ability to automatically hide items from a display that are um, out of inventory. Why even show Jason the shirt in the first place if we don't have it, right? Or tying that back into uh, even paid media ads. Don't get me started. Like why th this one, this one bothers me personally. Don't show me something on Instagram. I can't go to your site and buy, right? First of all, you just wasted a ton of money on that click. And second of all, I'm frustrated and I'm not going to remember to come back to your site. I didn't know your brand in the first place. Um, so I think there's a lot of ways. When we talk about omnichannel marketing, that's kind of what we're talking about. We're talking about tying sort of the back end uh, and supply chain into the actions that happen on the storefront, even though it is not related to necessarily the presentation layer that is the storefront, but very much the functional piece that is that storefront. 
and and it, it is extremely complex. Um, and when I think about uh, your going back to the beginning, the monolithic conversation versus composable, it seems to me that if there was a monolith that did it all, that would be amazing. But there's not. Um, but but there are there are solutions out there that are getting closer to that and where the lines between the technologies are blurring. Uh, and so I, we have about three minutes left. Can we do a lightning round of prediction questions? Sure, go for it. All right, hit me. I got five for you. Ready? All right. Predictions for early twenty twenty four. What is going to be the biggest threat to brick and mortar? Mm. That is a freaking great question. Um, I hit you too hard out of the gate. Sorry. No, that was awesome. That was awesome. I'm, I'm like a stunned <laughs> mullet here. Uh, I, I actually think I, I think that brick and mortar is going to thrive. I think that um, the biggest threat to brick and mortar is some of those uh, integrations that, that we talked about. I think that being able to show what is available for click and collect in store, not ship to store, because there's uh, I, what I call true click and collect versus quasi click and collect. A lot of brands do quasi click and collect where they actually ship from their web warehouse to the store for it to be collected by the customer. That's not what the customer wants. The customer wants to see what is in that store right now that I can drive to that store and pick up right now uh, and, and reserve online and pay online so that I just have to go in and pick it up and run home. I think that omni-channel integration is a massive barrier still. I still see it every single day where loyalty isn't integrated, inventory isn't integrated, they're treated as separate businesses, promotions aren't integrated because they can't be because the pause system doesn't have the same promotional capabilities as the e-commerce site. I, I still think that the thing that is holding bricks and mortar back more than anything else is the lack of system integration and trying to create as seamless of an in-store experience as online. That is still a massive barrier for most brands. And for the record, I did not plant that answer, but thank you so much for that Kibo commercial there. Uh, next question. <laughs> Most popular customer experience trend, trend in early 2024. What do you think is going to take over? Customer service trend. Um, I, think that, service. I think that chatbots will finally become much more common and much more normal now that systems like Intercom and Zendesk and Gorgeous now are able to have large language models run across their... Um, their knowledge bases. And as the brands add more information to their knowledge bases, it's just going to get better and better and better. And they won't have to be manually tuned and updated over time. They will be automatically tuned and updated over time. So I think more customer service chats, inbound chats as a percentage will be responded to in the first instance by a chatbot. I think we'll go from, you know, it's like 5% or something today. I think it'll move to 50 or 60% probably by the end of 2024. Well, let's see if the next question is the same answer. What do you think the hottest commerce technology is going to be in 2024 for e-commerce brands? Yeah, broadly speaking, AI, but I think AI impact on customer service for sure. And, and automating, again, I think AI is going to make those systems that are proactive in nature, it's going to make them have superpowers. It's going to mm -hmm. be like they have a crystal ball. So I, I think the proactive nature of customer service will get so much better in 2024 as all of these major technology vendors bring AI, for lack of a better term, into their technology. <laughs> Speaking of us technology vendors, what's going to be the biggest challenge for e-commerce vendors like Kibo or any of us? Commerce everywhere will become a thing. I think with the implosion of FTX and the delay of Web3, I think Web3 has been delayed 
by probably a decade, thanks to, to platforms like FTX. But I still think VR is the computing mm -hmm. platform of the future. And I think that almost all of all of technology vendors today are still working within the 2D paradigm, this flat screen paradigm, whether it's a laptop or a mobile or a tablet or whatever, they're still working or a TV, a touchscreen TV or whatever it is, they're still working in 2D paradigm. And I, and I think that, that when it comes, despite what Mark Zuckerberg says, and he thinks it's going to happen in the next six months, it's not. But when it comes, it's going to come with such ferocity. I think it's going to see levels of adoption that are even faster than the mobile device once they once it starts to hit the mainstream. And I think that's going to be a real challenge for a lot of vendors out there because they are not ready yet for 3D storefronts. And I think that's going to be a, a real challenge. I think I think some technology vendors will be fine, like PIM platforms and everything. You still need product data to present in a 3D environment. But uh, I still think the traditional e-commerce platform vendors, they will have to do a lot of retooling for 100% 3D environments. Yes, I would agree with that last statement for sure. Um, speaking of the uh, the industry and going back to our first question, what do you think is going to be the favorite new industry buzzword in 2024? I think it'll still be AI. I, I think okay. we've just we've just seen the beginning of the hype cycle now, and I think it's going to hit its stride in 2024. And I think VCs are always looking for the next bubble to pour their money into, and AI is it. So, so yeah, AI I, I, and 3D together, you can't lose, right? Oh, you can't lose. Can't lose. Put AI <laughs> at the beginning of your name and 3D at the end, and you're a winner. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jason. This has been a lot of fun. And if you'd like to get mentored by Jason for free, head over to greenwoodconsulting.net, scroll to the bottom of the page, and click Get Mentored by Jason.